Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nina Pantic. And I'm Irina Falcone. And our guest today is Melanie Udan, a former U.S. Open quarterfinalist, the 10-year anniversary of that run, and a former world number 31. So we're going to talk to her about where she is at in her life right now since retiring in 2017. All right, Melanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Catch us up with where you are right now. We know that you stopped competing about two years ago. You're only 27 years old. What are you up to? I'm actually coaching these days at Windward Lake Club in Alpharetta, Georgia. I committed to full-time coaching in about January of this year. And it's been a lot of fun. You know, it's funny. I, I actually never pictured myself as a coach. I don't know why. I guess after all the years on court, I kind of thought my, my time was my time was done on the court and um, kind of wanted to move on. But after starting coaching a little bit and trying now, I realized that um, it actually is my passion. And I love working with young kids and, and um, helping develop players and sharing, obviously, all my knowledge from all the years of playing with them. So you uh, stopped playing professionally two years ago, like Nina said. What kind of got um, what kind of led you to that decision? Well, I'm sure a lot of people know I had a struggle with a lot of injuries and, and health issues and things like that, which were totally out of my control, which is a bummer. I kind of always wish that I had like an ankle injury because I wasn't stretching enough or, or something like that. But, um, Instead, it was a lot of things that were completely out of my control and showed up, obviously, um, later in my career and um, really just ended up not being able to get past them. I feel like I, I had one and then another one came and then I'd finally come back after being out for six months and trained so hard to get back and then something else would happen. And I just felt like that cycle continued for like maybe four or five years until finally I had another big setback um, towards the end, the year I retired early in the year with mono and a horrible hamstring injury. And I just felt like that was it for me. My my body was never, was never the same. And to compete obviously at the top, top tour level, you need to be a hundred percent. First off, like that really sucks to hear that you had to stop playing because of injuries. I mean, that just sucks because it really wasn't your decision in a sense. Um, right. And I, I do remember there was also a time where you had like a something heart related and there was also something with your eye as well. Yes. So those are the things that were out of my control. Um, I had this weird um, heart condition called... Um, a type of SVT it was superventricular tachycardia. And I know everything about the heart now and how it works um, from all of my doctor's appointments and things like that. But I actually, unfortunately, was misdiagnosed 
for about a year and a half or so and um, was struggling with this, playing through it in my in the tournaments. And um, I was diagnosed with panic attacks. And I always thought, you know, I, I of course believe the doctors, but, you know, 10 years ago, I played in front of thousands and thousands of people and never had a panic attack. And you would think that that's when it would have happened instead of just, you know, when I was 20, 21 years old, um, at a small tournament in the middle of nowhere, you know? Um, and basically it, it, it has to do with the connection from your brain to your heart. And, um, basically like there's a nice cycle that kind of goes in like a big circle. And what was happening with mine, I had some extra tissue right near my heart that was stopping the pathway for the nice continuing cycle to go through. So it almost got blocked. And so when it would get blocked, my heart would race like crazy. It would go like almost 200, 220 beats per minute with me just sitting down. And, um, that was really scary, obviously. (laughs) Um, that's why I said about, I would rather have something wrong with my ankle or something instead of your heart. Cause you, I feel like I was dying half the time. And of course it's very scary. And, um, the problem was that I, I felt like it was all my fault. I felt like, you know, I was the one not being able to handle the pressure and having these panic attacks. And that it was, it was my own fault with like breathing and, um, not being able to relax and things like that. And then finally ended up realizing that it was not panic attacks and it was this heart condition and um, that I played for almost two years with this going on when it could have been fixed. So that was a little bit disappointing from the doctors being misdiagnosed for, for that long and trying to play through it. What was the treatment plan and the solution? Because nothing sounds worse to me than a heart or, I mean, brain situation because it feels so, like like you said, like a, a quad, an ankle, an arm. We, we can relate to that. As tennis players, we understand what pain in an arm is. But pain or problems with something that's like an organ just seems like another level of terror. So what was the treatment and the options that you had? Yes, it, it definitely messes with your head a little bit, you know. Um, it's, it's a lot different than just a, a normal injury, like you said. So I finally ended up being at a tournament actually in my, in Macon, Georgia, my grandma was there with me. I finished the singles match. I had to pull out of doubles. And what would happen is I would get these episodes where my heart would race like crazy. I would start losing feeling in my arms and my legs and I would turn pretty pale and it would almost look like I was about to pass out. And, um, my grandma made me go to an urgent care while this was happening because she's like, this has happened so many times. I like want to find out exactly what's wrong. And so I actually went, got my blood pressure taken. They couldn't find it. My heart rate was at about 200 beats per minute. And so they right away told me this was not a panic attack. This is definitely a heart condition and being able to do an EKG at that moment they were actually able to figure out what the problem was. I went back to Atlanta the next day. I saw a new cardiologist and then I booked um, my, I, I got a procedure done like two weeks later that they use four catheters to go up through the groin up into the heart area. And then they burn off tissue right next to 
your heart and that is supposed to fix it. But unfortunately, three months later after training and trying to come back, I'm at Indian Wells and practicing right before the pre-qualifying tournament was going to be my first turn back. And I had another episode and that meant to me, and I, I knew it, I was wearing a heart monitor at the time that it wasn't fully gone, that they hadn't burnt enough tissue. And they say that they sometimes are afraid to burn too much, especially with someone that was as young as me. I think I was only 20, 21. And so I ended up having to get another procedure and that one actually did work. It was funny because it was the same doctor in Atlanta that had done Robbie Ginepri's procedure, which is pretty interesting. Like I ran into him in Atlanta and was trying to find a new doctor and he ended up, um, letting me know about this, this one doctor that he had had done his and he'd never had a problem since. And I got mine done from the same doctor and I never had a problem since then also. So I'm so glad that it worked out and, and I find the right, I found the right person. Well, that's great, at least to hear that you've gotten through this. I just, I mean, as someone that's been in tennis, I had no idea that this was happening. I had no idea you were going through all of this. I mean, that's, that's so much for someone so young. Yeah, I, I, I did keep it to myself a lot because I thought I was having panic attacks. So I was a little bit embarrassed and I didn't really want people to know, you know, it kind of made me feel like I was weak and I was seeing a, um, a psychologist for it cause I was trying to work on my breathing and things like that. And none of that clearly was working because it wasn't actually panic attacks. Um, so I really, i struggled with that for a while and and oh yeah, only a few people knew, um, especially people that I had actually played doubles with that I had to um, pull out with because it had happened and then I wasn't able to recover in time that same day for a doubles match. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was a lot. I mean, you know, I'm not one to make excuses, especially for losing matches and things like that. But it was it was definitely a really tough time and and scary. I'm so glad that everything is is good now. Yeah, I'm I'm super glad to hear that too, Mel. Man, it sounds like that was such a hard thing to have to handle. I mean, I don't care what age you are. I mean, that's not something that anybody wants to deal with. Um, but good to hear that you're you're back on it and you're okay now. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. All right, Tennis.com podcast listeners, we're on this episode with Melanie Udan, a former U.S. Open quarterfinalist who was ranked as high as number 31 in the world, and she's sharing her story about everything she's been up to since retiring in 2017. Back to Melanie. Um, so tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you got into coaching. I mean, that's, that's a big transition, and I guess not a huge transition from tennis player to coach, but um, at someone as you know, as young as you, like you decided, okay, I want to stay in tennis and I want to coach young kids. How'd you get to that? Yes. Um, well I actually ended up when I retired, I took a little bit of time to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was just coaching a little bit privately in Atlanta. And then 
I, um, I, I wanted to make sure I tried a little bit of everything, making sure that I made the right decision because after retiring, like the transition is really hard. I, I mean, I struggled a little bit with my identity, like who I am without being a tennis player. Um, you know, and it's funny, a lot of people don't really, there's, there's not a lot of, um, advice and like a lot of things, a lot of people, there's, there's not no kind of program that kind of prepares you for life after being on the pro tour. Um, especially if you had, you know, never gone to college and, and I didn't, you know, I don't have a degree and things like that. So, you know, my plan was kind of to be a pro tennis player and be pretty set after that and, and maybe do some commentating things like that after. Um, but of course things didn't go exactly as planned as I wanted them to go. Um, but yes, anyways, I, I definitely accepted my decision. It just took a while to get used to not being Melanie, the tennis player anymore and being Melanie, something else. Um, and, um, after trying coaching a little bit, I, I kind of realized that that is what I really wanted to do. The, the broadcasting I really liked, but honestly, I didn't know if like, it just wasn't me like the getting hair and makeup done every day. And the, the commentating is kind of, it's not really natural. I mean, I know it sounds natural, but it's, I feel like, you know, you have to talk at these certain times and it's, I I liked the interviewing better because it was like a normal conversation and, and you really got to know the person, um, and their personality really came out and, and things like that. So I struggled a little bit with that, with the commentating, and then really realize that being in tennis clothes and wearing shorts and t-shirts and being on the court and, and sweating and hitting tennis balls was kind of what I, what I really, really wanted to do. And one of the biggest things actually I've, I've noticed with coaching is it is so much easier being on the coaching side. I mean, I, I sit there and watch and I'm just like, how in the world did you miss that shot? You know? And then I'm thinking to myself, that is exactly how my coach felt with me, you know? And, and I, it's actually really good. I think for me, cause I can relate so well to the playing side, knowing like that shot actually isn't that easy, you know, when you're, when you're in both positions, um, it, it definitely is, is a different, um, a different view. And I'm really enjoying like learning more of the coaching side since obviously know the playing side already. So I think that's going to really help me be a good coach. I think definitely you will. I mean, especially we talked about your age a lot so far, but you being young, relating to young players is definitely another thing in your advantage. And because you're so fresh from playing, you kind of still remember everything. But we have to talk about your stint in broadcast and interviewing for a minute because I remember at the Miami Open, I was hiding out in these bushes trying to do the stand-up videos <laughs> For the first time, and I, that's how, kind of how I got my start a little bit with trying to do camera things. And you were kind of in the same little bush area, but with World Team Tennis with like an official setup. And I ran into you and I just thought like, God, this is so embarrassing. But you were so nice and supportive. And I just thought like, yeah, you know what? I should be doing this. I will. I will. <laughs> you should. I told, I completely remember that. But no, you're, you were awesome. I, that's, one of, that's one of the coolest things. Um for me was the interviewing. Like I said, I really, really enjoyed it. I felt like, especially if you know the players, which obviously you do too, I think it's really fun to ask questions that, you know, the average person might, might not necessarily think of to ask. And obviously 
not being a fellow player anymore, things maybe that I wanted to know that I never asked before I could ask as the interviewer. Um, so yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And, and that's actually where I met Matt Fitzgerald for the first time who wrote that article in Tennis Magazine. That's so cool. He works at Tennis Channel now, so we, we, we see him a lot more. Oh, that's awesome. It's so funny to hear um, hear you talk about how much you loved interviewing players, because I'm sure Nina can agree to it. When a player is asking another player questions in an interview, I feel it's a little more lighthearted. You feel like, hey, I can, we're friends, and we can totally just say tell each other anything because we know each other so well. And I remember... I saw you at US Open, you were interviewing Pliskova, and I was like, oh my gosh, she probably feels so much more comfortable getting interview questions from Melanie than, say, some a reporter <laughs> yeah. that she's never met, you know? So exactly. True. Like a random old man asking questions, nosy questions, and he's never played tennis in his life, versus <laughs> Melanie Udan, you know, former US Open fourth round, former number top 30 player, you know, like one US Open mixed doubles title. Like, come on, that's going to be more <laughs> yeah. relatable. Yeah, no, it, I mean, I felt the same playing as well. You know, you, you feel so much more comfortable. And I feel like the players are a lot more open. Also, you, you really get to see more of their personality. Because exactly what you said, they feel more comfortable to open up. And then also, like, I think they know that you're not going to ask any dumb questions, which we all know that, unfortunately, a lot of reporters do ask. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine, um, you know, having to ask those tough questions. Like, I, I still see some, like, videos of when reporters are asking players, oh, hey, like, how do you think you played? Like, it was a tough loss, or they actually had won the match, or mm-hmm. vice versa. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have stories, Nina. Things happen sometimes. Yeah. Things get confusing. Like, speaking of, I just said you made the fourth round, but you made the quarterfinals. And, like, I know that, but, you know, you get, oh, you get okay. amped up. So we're around, we're around the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> we're around the U.S. Open, and it's as Matt Fitzgerald wrote in Tennis Magazine. It's the 10-year anniversary of your breakthrough and your big moment in New York. Is that one of your fond memories? Is it bittersweet? Is it tough? What What do you think about when you look back? And it's been a decade. Yes, yes. Um, I can't believe it's been 10 years. You know, it, it's it's really funny. It, it's a, uh, and I've actually had a lot of interviews recently. I feel like everyone wants to talk to me about it because it's been. It's been 10 years. Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, it, it, it's fun. Like, you know, it all comes back to me now and, and I'm um, thinking back and it's just such an unbelievable experience and, and something that of course I will never forget. Um, and you know, someone asked me the other day, like, Oh, do you ever wish that you could have, you know, do you ever wish that you could have had a run like that again? I'm like, of course I do. I'm like, that was one of the bad questions that I was talking about. Um, but uh, yes, Perfect yes. example of a dumb I'm like, question. yes, doesn't everyone, <laughs> but you know, this is, this is the hand I was dealt. And I mean, gosh, like, you know, how many people can say that they have made the quarterfinals of the U S open. So, um, and, to have that kind of run and, and people cheering for me and, and, the whole belief thing and, and inspiring a lot of people. I mean, I couldn't have asked for anything more than that. So I'm really proud of that tournament. And, um, it is very special thinking back and, um, you know, every time I go to the open, like hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll go next year and go for many years to come since I've got the final eight badge. And, um, I'm sure every time I go and see Ash and uh, it'll bring everything back again for me. 
Girl, don't sell yourself short. I know it didn't happen the same year, but you won a Grand Slam with Jack Sock. So I know you made quarterfinals and singles, but I mean, Grand Slam champion is pretty freaking good too. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was such an, a crazy win for us there because, you know, it was just so unexpected being wild cards. And I mean, Jack and I, we didn't even we did really did not think that we were going to get that far. I mean, being really young, I was 19, he was 17, um, two teenagers still. And just being able to make it like a few rounds in that tournament was huge. And then actually believing that we could win the tournament and take a little more seriously. Um, but yeah, it ended up being a really, really amazing tournament. And, and of course, yes, winning a grand slam in anything, even though, I kind of always wish it was singles, but I will take one in mixed doubles is pretty, pretty great accomplishment. And you get to be part of the U.S. Open history for the rest of your life. And as you said, the final eight bad. So that is all pretty sweet. When you saw, you know, speaking of young breakthroughs and being an American at the U.S. Open. So, of course, Corey Coco Goff is the hype girl of the moment. When you saw this 15-year-old, I mean, reach the fourth round of Wimbledon, could you relate? Do you feel like... I get that a little bit, but I mean, I was 17. She's, I can't believe she's only 15. I mean, that is just two years younger than I was. I just, it's, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. Um, I did watch her play summit Wimbledon, a couple of the matches there and very impressed with how she handled the moment. Um, lots of poise, lots of confidence. And, um, you can just tell that she's a very hard worker and, and I feel like she, for that moment. So I'm really interested to see how she does um, this year at the U.S. Open. I feel like there's a cycle always of media, including myself, hyping up these players and then giving them so much attention and all these interview requests and then Vogue and, you know, Tennis Magazine and Tennis.com, Tennis I mean, it's just everywhere. And I sometimes feel so almost guilty for overhyping her. So I hope that she just stays this young 15-year-old and does really well and doesn't get blown away by it all. Because I remember Cece Bellis had a similar run at the U.S. Open. She was also 15. Yep. And that was an explosion of attention. And you similarly – I remember vividly reading something. Um, it would have been the year you you made the quarters. And you said that you went to, like, Times Square or somewhere in Midtown in Manhattan and you went out in the car to, like, greet fans. And it was overwhelming because everyone knew your name and went crazy. And it's just like, how does this happen? But I guess we kind of make it happen. Yes. And you playing well made it happen. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and there's always, there's always going to be a next CeCe Bellis or Coco Goff. I feel like there's always going to be someone that has a great run at a young age. And then I don't know why, I mean, everyone, and for some reason we put so much pressure and like so much on someone from like one huge tournament, you know? And I mean, of course, like, I mean, I, I, really loved having tons of people cheering for me and things like that, but it was a lot. And and for me at the time was a little bit different because there really weren't many young Americans coming up. It, it was like Venus and Serena and me. And that like, I was, I think one of the only ones in, in like the top hundred at that time. And now it's a little bit different. We've got a lot of Americans at the top, um, way more than there was 10 years ago. And so I think the pressure is a little bit more spread out. Um, but yes, I'm hoping people will learn. I can be an example of kind of letting, letting the pressure get to me a little bit. Of course, like, you know, my injuries and things like that. 
um, unfortunately got in the way, I feel like of me being able to get back to the top, but, um, but yes, I, it definitely was a lot. I, I had no idea that all those other things, like you said, come with being a good tennis player and there's so many off court things and everyone wants to talk to you and the media and photo shoots and sponsors and all these other things. So I really, really hope that Coco is able to stay grounded through all of this and, and, um, continue her, her career. Just kind of following up on that, you know, it, it's gotta be so difficult to come out at 17 and all of a sudden people are shouting your name. I'm sure you had some scary experiences, even, you know, with, with stalkers, you wouldn't even imagine the kind of people that like become obsessed. Um, and, uh, what would you say if you were to give advice to someone like Coco, what would you say to her on how to handle those people and how to handle the media and the, the hype, if you will? I, I think the most important thing, like I said, is stay grounded and then remember what got you there. You know, I, I feel like she has a great support system. Her, I obviously both her parents seem like they are very, very involved. Um, she's got a great coaching team. So I think that's the most important thing really is to, to keep a great team around you and remember the people that have been with you through the ups and the downs, not just people that want to be with you while you're doing really, really well. Because I feel like the people that are with you when you're at the bottom, that really shows who's there for you and will be there for you through it all. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, listeners, here we are with Melanie Udan, former U.S. Open quarter finalist. We're talking about her story, her coaching life at the moment, her Believe camps, and we're just taking a moment to remember her 10-year anniversary when she made a dream run, hashtag Believe. Um, so keep listening. Can you see yourself? I mean, you just sound so, you sound so knowledgeable in all of this and so invested still in the game and what's happening. Do you ever see yourself coaching pros? I, I do. I do. Um, I would love to work with a pro player someday. Um, I feel like where I am right now is, is really great. Um, been coaching now, like off and on for almost two years, but you know, full time, probably close to a year. Um, especially just privately. And then now obviously at, at Windward. Um, I mean, I feel like that's the world that I know so well. I mean, I know the pro world almost better than anything. And, um, that's the world I, I miss. I miss the environment of the tournaments and, um, you know, I, I feel like that's the kind of player that I would want to work with. You know, it's not easy working with people that don't have the same, same kind of dream and goal that, that you had. And so sometimes it's actually hard for me to relate a little bit because when I was 16 years old, I was, you know, I was pro and, and I was very professional and I was mature and independent and I had this one goal and, and focus and, and things like that. And then you see sometimes 16 year olds was nothing wrong with it. It's just harder for me to relate to where, you know, parties are more important and, and they give 50% in practices and, 
you know, it's just, it's very, very different than what I was used to when I was growing up playing and, and I had this goal in mind of, of being a pro. So yes, I would, I would love to work with someone, even if it was younger and it was more their, their goal to get to that top level. Um, I just feel like that high performance world and is kind of what I would thrive in. There's not a lot of, I, I completely agree with you. There's not a lot of female coaches out there, especially. I think I can only name a couple like Renee Stubbs and Amelie Moresmo. Judy Murray, obviously, is a legend. We had her on the podcast before, so shout out to Judy. Um, do you see space, like tons and tons of space for you? Because we need more women out there coaching. I, I totally agree. Um, you know, unfortunately, I actually just had an interview a few days ago about female coaches and that the USTA is really trying to do a good job. I did a couple USTA camps and they tried all girl camps and they tried to have all female coaches and they did, they did have all female coaches and, um, it was really, really great. Just the vibe. And I feel like the, the related, they can relate to the younger, younger girls, especially if they've played, they've been through all the same kind of things. And, um, you know, the unfortunate thing is, and, and I said this as well, when I was coming up, I just had never worked with a female coach and I didn't really think that I would like having a female coach, you know, and it's because almost no one, no one had one. So I'm really hoping now, I feel like obviously that was, you know, more than 10 years ago. I think things have changed now. And obviously with the WTCA, Sarah Stone's an amazing job growing that and, I feel like more are coming out on the tour and are able to work with some of the top level pros, but there are still, I, I think it's definitely missing. I mean, like you said, you can only name like a few. Um, I just don't know if a lot of the players are hesitant to work with a female coach. I feel like there's just this mindset of men's coaches are tougher or they can hit better. I don't know what it is, but there's something about it where where they feel like they should have or they need a male coach to do better for some reason. I mean, I'm, just from a personal level, I think I would probably be leaning towards a male coach just because of that quality that they can hit with me probably better than a female coach. But, I mean, Plushkova's working with Conchita right now. I mean, I'm sure that she can still hit the ball just as good as anybody out there. Um, but I mean, just from the biological sense, a lot of females are just not on the tour because they want to have families, they want to have children. And because of that, they're not able to travel as much. It's, it's kind of something that is obvious, but it, it needs to be said because I'm sure there would be more female coaches out there if that just, you know, didn't have to happen. <laughs> Right, right. And, I, and I, I totally agree. That's one of the things I said also in the interview. It's like, I'm sure, you know, a, a, a male can easily be the stay at home dad too. But I feel like the females obviously um, are the ones that normally want to stay home with their, their babies um, and their kids and, and things like that. But I, I just feel like, I, I mean, I worked with Adina Galovitz toward the end of my, towards the end of my career. And Yes, it was towards the end, and it was just so nice to have a, almost like a, a friend and, and someone that had been through all the things that I'd been through, you know, and I mean, obviously she hit pretty well, too, and I feel like I can still hit pretty well, so um, I feel like it's it's just about 
what you prefer. And, and I, I feel like a lot of players have never tried having a female coach. So, um, I, I, I just feel like, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just your preference. I guess uh, the last thing I think we want to finish up on is, so you're coaching full time, you're, you're coaching juniors. Or do you have any goals like for the end of the year? Do you, what do you see yourself in a year from now, other than potentially coaching on the tour? Um, a couple years from now, do you think you would ever go back to school? Anything like that? Um, maybe. Yes. I mean, I, I've thought about it right now. I, um, I'm definitely happy with coaching where I'm at. Um, you know, I, I, Winward, I, I see it as like a, a little bit of a stepping stone for me, you know, starting with some of the younger, younger players and kind of, and then working with a little bit all ages, trying to find my niche, like which age I kind of like the most. And, and so far I really have liked for me right now, the development level between maybe 10 and 14. Um, I actually coached at 12 zonals, which was really fun and done a bunch of USDA camps and I'm still doing charity events and clinics and things like that. So I really enjoy doing a little bit of everything, but, um, I also am having, I forgot about this. I'm, I actually am doing these belief camps. Um, and it's been between the ages of 10 and 14. And, um, I had a couple last summer, this summer I had one, I'm hoping to do another one later this fall, but basically it's really for, you know, I had like 16 girls. They come from, came from like all over the South. And, um, this is what I, I really, really love doing it because I feel like it gave me a really good chance to in- inspire these girls and like be a good role model and, you know, help them to believe in themselves more and, and have more confidence and, and trust themselves and their shots and their game when there's so much pressure now from parents, from coaches, from UTR, you know, I, I just feel like they're, there's constantly comparing themselves to other people instead of trying to be the best tennis player that, that they can be. So that's one of the things I'm really proud of my belief camps that I'm doing. Um, and I'm hoping to, to continue that, um, later this fall and then obviously into the spring next year also. Of course they're called believe as well, that it's so perfect. Yes, I know. That you pretty much got to get to own that word. It's like yours, trademarked, <laughs> Melanie Udan, believe. A lot of people still like will come, people randomly will, you know, recognize me in Atlanta and then they'll just be like, oh, like believe or like they'll just randomly say it. Like for some reason that that word is, is always going to be resonated with my name. I love it. I think it's fitting. So if someone wanted to learn more about these Believe camps, uh, where would we send them? Um, you can go to my website, MelanieUdanBelieve.com. Perfect. Um, or the Windward Lake Club website also. Okay, because you're at the Windward Lake Club right now. That's where you're based. Yes. Cool. Okay, yeah. This has been such a good talk and such a good episode, and it was so good to catch up with you and find out you know, what you're up to and what you're trying to work on and what happened in the couple last couple of years of your life. So we really appreciate your time and your honesty and all the advice and lessons you've shared. I mean, you're so good at speaking. No wonder you were doing interviews and broadcast. Oh, thanks. Nina. Thank you guys. No, I've really, I've really enjoyed speaking with you guys. I'm so glad we got to catch up some. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story, Mel. And uh, good luck to everything and good luck in all of your endeavors and never stop believing, I guess. I got I had to say you. it. I had to say it. <laughs> Thank you guys. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the tennis.com podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. 
We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer Luke Mahoney, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.